Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. This morning we are continuing a series called Dollars and Cents, and we are talking about money, which of course is everyone's favorite topic to talk about in church. But there's a couple specific reasons why we're talking about money in church and why we're tackling this together. And the first one is this, you already talk about or think about money every single day. Whether it's a small purchase, whether it's a large purchase, whether you're looking at your bank account or you're thinking about the amount of cash in your wallet or your cards, we all think about money on a regular basis. And so if we think about it all the time, if it's something that's on our minds a lot, why wouldn't we want to learn more about it? And that leads us to our second piece of why we're talking about money in church today is this, that everyone has financial goals but not everyone knows how to reach them. A lot of us have goals, whether they're written or unwritten. Maybe the goal is as simple as, I want to be able to pay my bills or make rent this month or be able to pay my mortgage. Or maybe your goals are bigger. Maybe you're looking at your kid's education or you're looking at retirement. You're saying, these are the things that I want to work towards, but I don't exactly know how to get there. And so that's why we're talking about this together as a church. That's why we're digging into this, because we have a, a specific goal for you that we hope becomes your goal as well. And that is this, that we want people to live with margin and to live on mission. These two things, margin and mission. And margin means that you have space in your, in your finances, that the amount of money you earn or you make that comes in is larger than the amount of money you spend. That's called living with margin. And what living with margin does is it will turn your crisis into an inconvenience. Because when you have margin, you can do things like have money set aside for unexpected repairs, for unexpected expenses that come up. When you have margin, you have breathing room in your finances. And finances doesn't have to be the stress and the constant worry that we talked about last week, where oftentimes we get stressed out and worried about money. Money doesn't have to be a worry when we have margin. And the second piece of it is to live on mission. And that means being able to use your finances to impact what matters to you. That means being able to use our finances beyond ourselves, to use them in ways that impact other people, that shape the world, that, that support you know, organizations like YFC U-Turn, uh, or maybe you have a list of organizations and people that are doing amazing things around the world that are on your heart that you say, you know, I want to support them. But sometimes we just don't we feel like we don't have the ability to, but when we live with margin, we can live on mission. And so today, we're going to be, continue this series, and we're going to talk about another attitude that we often have towards money. But I want to, before we get to that, I want to take us back to an amazing, wonderful piece of technology. And I'm not talking about the phone in your pocket or the internet or cars like you might expect I would talk about, but I want to actually take us back about 6,000 years Because about 6,000 years ago, someone was told, you need to move that pile of stuff from there to over there. Probably a father told their son, and their son went, you know, I really don't want to do that. You know, why would I want to move and do all the labor of moving whatever this is to over there? And then they looked out across a field, and you know what they saw? They saw an ox, and thought, huh, I bet I could train that ox to pull that load of rocks or dirt or wood or whatever it was from there to there. See, about 6,000 years ago is our estimate of when humans started domesticating animals, when oxen started being trained. 
And you might think, why is this important? Why does that matter? Why is this such a great marvel of technology? Just hang on, bear with me for a second. Because after, when someone saw that ox pulling a wagon, pulling something across, because the wheel had already been around for a while, that was, you know, big earth-shattering technology right there, something round. But then someone had the idea, we could put a plow behind that animal. And now instead of hoeing and tilling a field by hand, suddenly this animal can do it, and I get to just operate the plow. And what happened? When the plow was invented, these two parallel technologies of the plow being pulled by draft animals, suddenly our ability to produce food skyrocketed. Our ability to go beyond just sustenance agriculture began to happen as humanity, as a species. See, what happened in there is there was a moment of creativity. There was a moment where someone looked at that plow, looked at the the way we were doing agriculture, looked at an ox and said, there is a better way. And that spark of creativity, that desire to look at a problem, to look at the way we're doing things and say, you know, there is a better way, there is a different way, there's something we can change, is a desire that every person has. And I actually believe it comes from a theological position, that it comes because God created the world out of his desire to create And time and time again in Scripture, we see moments of creativity. In fact, the very first people who are ever described as being filled with the Holy Spirit were the craftsmen who built the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit empowered them to be creative, to be able to build this beautiful tabernacle, this large tent that became the representation of God's presence with his people. See, all of us have this spark to create, this desire to make things better. See, underneath every invention that has ever been made is this desire for our lives to be better, easier, and more productive. And it comes from this place of creativity that we all have. But sometimes that desire goes and runs unhinged. Sometimes our desire to create, to make things better than they currently are, goes too far. And oftentimes we actually see this with money when our desire for more becomes too much. And so last week we talked about money being a constant worry that if you feel like you don't have enough or you feel like it's out of control, it's something that worries us. Today we're kind of talking about the other side of that. And it doesn't mean that you have a lot. It might mean that you just want a lot. And so today we're talking about money being an endless pursuit. That sometimes our perspective on money is that it is an endless pursuit for more for better, for for a greater quantity, for better means of making money. Sometimes we get consumed by this. And this is an attitude that all of us often have to some point underneath the surface. And it's often a, a perspective we'd rather hide because let's just call it what it is. We're talking about greed. Everyone has some level of greed that we have to deal with. Everyone has some level of thinking, I want more. Now, even if you look at someone, you're like, you know, they have it all together. They're driving a brand new vehicle. They got a brand new house. They must have it all together. They can't deal with greed. But the problem with greed is greed is a moving goalpost. And in fact, there's been, a, been studies done on this where they'll ask people, how much money do you think you would need to make to be secure? Do you know what the answer is? It's 20% more than whatever you have now. No matter what your income is, the, the general response across North America is you will feel content if you have 20% more than what you have right now. So, but the problem with that is if you gain that 20% more, then you ask them, at what point will you be happy? You know what they say? Another 20%. 
See, greed is a moving goalpost. Our pursuit for more sometimes becomes an unending goal of saying, well, I'll only be secure then. I'll only be content then. I'll only be happy then. But all of us have to deal with this at some point. And the problem with greed is that greed always leads to us becoming overstretched, but still wanting more. Greed always leads us into a place of stress. Greed always leads us into a place of unhappiness and, and really frustration. And that's not the way that God designed that desire in us to be. God designed us with this creativity and this ability to build and this ability to want to better our world because he gave us dominion over the world. It was one of the first acts of creation that God did when he created humanity was to say, look at what I have created for you. This is for you to take care of and be responsible for. But our desire for more always pushes us beyond that. So how do we get rid of greed? That's what we're going to talk about. How do we end the endless pursuit? How do we tackle greed in the way that it affects us? And the way it comes down to is really something that when you see this, you're going to go, oh yeah, of course. You know, really, did we need to spend a Sunday on this? Well, let's spend some time digging into it. But here's the simple, basic truth. Gratitude and contentment are what defeat greed. It's not about gaining more. It's about changing our perspective towards more. Now, we could just wrap it up there, and I could say, here's something to be thankful for, we're ending. But I'm, let's spend some time in Scripture. I think we should do that when we gather, is that we should dig into what Scripture has to say, because Scripture has a lot of really great advice about this, about how do we find gratitude, how do we find contentment. And today we're going to go to a guy named Paul. And Paul's name wasn't always Paul. In fact, Paul's name at the beginning, when we first meet him in Scripture, was actually Saul. And his job at the time was he was one of the Pharisees. He was one of the religious elites of the first century. And he had a specific task and job. And his job was to go and persecute Christians. His job was to end this starting movement that at the time was just called the way of these people that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that Jesus had, was when he was killed by Rome, when he was executed on a cross, that Jesus actually came back to life. And his followers saw him and he empowered them to go and take this message of hope and reconciliation and love to the whole world. And what happened was that was very threatening to the Pharisees. So they hired guys like Saul, guys from within their ranks to go and persecute the church. And so one day as Saul is traveling on the way to a city called Damascus, Jesus appears to him. Jesus appears to Saul and says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is struck blind by this. He can't see, and Jesus speaks to him more. He says, I will show you how much you will suffer for my sake. Really encouraging Jesus. Like, super encouraging message. Like, Jesus could have said so many different things to Saul in that moment. He could have said, hey, you're going to go and you're going to plant dozens, even hundreds of churches. You're going to lead thousands of people into my love, into my grace, into my peace you are going to see so many things happen. You're going to see God's spirit unleashed. You're going to see God move. You're going to see healings. You're going to see deliverances. You're going to see all those things. That's what Jesus could have told Saul. Instead, he says, I'm going to show you how much you'll suffer for my sake. And so Saul has this time period, about 10 days, where he is blind. And he has to reflect on this. Well, what am I going to do with my life now that I know that this group of people I'm persecuting, they actually have the truth. 
Jesus really did rise from the grave. Paul's, Saul's whole worldview is changing in those days. And so Jesus sends another guy to visit Saul and to restore his sight. And then Saul's name gets changed to Paul to kind of mark this difference that he has left his old ways. In fact, at the beginning, the early church didn't trust him. They didn't believe this was real. They thought it was a big ruse. But then they realized, no, there's truth in this. And so Paul began a ministry of traveling and teaching and telling people about Jesus, planting churches as he went. But there's still the problem of that group of Pharisees that he used to be part of, that he used to work for, they were out to get him. And they were able to cause enough issues that Rome, the governing authority of the area, arrested Paul, but then now they didn't know what to do with him. Because they arrested him, but they didn't actually have charges that could stick, so they just kind of held him in jail. And were like, you know, if we wait long enough, maybe the problem will go away. And Rome had a very specific way of making problems go away when they arrested people. See, when, if you're in jail in Rome, there's, there's two things that happens. If you are a citizen, Rome actually will give you a daily allowance for food. Now, they didn't provide you food when you were in jail. They would give you like just a few coins each day. And you had to have someone willing to come to you to take those few coins, few pennies, and go and buy you some bread and then bring it back to you. Rome would not feed their prisoners. And so if you were in prison, you had to rely on other people to come and do this. And that's a big moment of trust because you've only got these few pennies. You have no way of earning money. So you give them to someone hoping they'll return with bread. But you know that even if they get the best deal they can, they buy the stale day old moldy bread. It's not actually going to be enough to feed you for a day. See, Rome's technique was to starve you to death while you waited for trial. Real ethical, moral way of doing things. Right, Rome? But if you weren't a citizen of Rome, which Paul was, if you weren't a citizen of Rome, they didn't even give you that. They just locked you up and let you waste away, and hopefully you had people to rely on. So Paul is in this situation where he is locked up, and he is relying on other people for this. And because he was locked up, he realized that if he wrote letters, he could send them. He could still encourage these churches. Even though he couldn't travel to see them, he could encourage them. And those letters that he wrote make up the bulk of our New Testament scriptures. And one of those letters was to a group of Christians known as the Church of Philippi. The letter's called Philippians. And we're going to go to the end of that letter, Philippians 4, where Paul is writing to say thank you to this group of believers. And here's what he says, Philippians 4.10. Paul says, How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have a chance to help me. He's saying, thank you for your care. Thank you for your concern. And a little later in a verse that we're not going to quite get to, he actually says this explicitly, thank you for your financial support, how you have provided for my needs in this time. But then Paul, of course, because he's Paul, he doesn't just leave it at thank you. He turns this into a teaching opportunity where he gets to try to teach and encourage the Philippian church despite his circumstances. So Paul says, you know, thank you for this. You've been concerned for me again, even though you didn't have the chance to help me before. Then he says, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little. Now, what's interesting about this is Paul doesn't just come in straight out and say, here's what you have to do. He says, I have learned. This was something that Paul had to discover. How do you learn how to be content 
with whatever your circumstances? How do you learn to be content if you have a lot or if you have a little? And in fact, what's interesting about Paul is back when he was Saul, when he was part of the Pharisees, to be part of the Pharisees, you actually had to be part of the upper echelon of society. Saul, when he was Saul, when he was working for the Pharisees, he was a man who came from wealth and who came from means. He came from the top layers of Jewish society when he was a Pharisee. So when he says, I have learned how to live and be content with whatever I have, he's not saying, I've always been poor and had nothing. He actually understood what it was to have everything he wanted. But he gave that up and says, no, instead, I have learned this secret of living in every situation because he's learned how to be content. He's learned how to look at everything he has with gratitude. He's learned how to say, I'm in prison, but I have this opportunity to write letters. I have this opportunity to still encourage people. I have this opportunity to still tell people about Jesus. In fact, in the book of Acts, we see times where Paul led the jailers, the people holding him in prison, to Christ. He chose to see every place he was as an opportunity for something more. And that only happens when we start with contentment and when we start with gratitude. And then Paul says this next. He says, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now this verse, if we looked at it on, our, on its own and we took the context out of it and we, we took out Paul's story of what's happening, where this is in the moment, this could be one of the most misquoted verses in Scripture. Because if you looked at just this verse, as I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. You know, maybe I should like get a weightlifting bench here and rack up like 300 pounds and be like, hey everyone, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Watch me bench press this and you would all have a viral video on your hands of me getting crushed by a weight bar because I can't do that. See, when we look at this verse, we need to look at what is Paul talking about? Is he talking about physical strength? No, he's actually not. What is he talking about when he says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength? What he's talking about is he says, I know where my identity is. He says, I know where I'm rooted. I am rooted in Christ. And Christ gives me the strength to endure whatever situation I'm in. Because what Christ is leading Paul to, the mission that Christ gave him, what Paul is setting out to do with his life is more important than anything else. So he says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. He says, I can endure whatever's happening. I can find contentment. I can find gratitude in every situation because of who Jesus is. And then he returns back to gratitude. He says, even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. He commends them. He thanks them. He says, you have done well by helping me in this moment. See, Paul made a choice to be content in every situation and to be grateful for everything, no matter what was going on. And this is how Paul defeated greed. This is how he got to push greed aside and say, it's not about me. It's about finding contentment and finding gratitude in every moment. And this is something that all of us can do. We've done series before about burnout and stress and being overwhelmed. And one of the things that I do when I start feeling stressed is I keep a stack of thank you cards in my desk. And I pull it out. I pull out usually about four or five of them. And I just sit there until I have written four or five thank you cards to people. What is something I can be grateful for? And then I 
put a postage stamp on them and I mail them because everyone likes getting mail that's not spam and not a bill. You know, when you actually see a letter pull up, like, we think it's just kids that like mail, but let's be honest. Do you, you open your mailbox, there's actually something, like, with a real stamp on it that's been handwritten. It's like, oh, someone actually did this. You know, this is actually something significant. See, when we choose to turn ourselves to gratitude, we turn ourselves away from greed. We turn ourselves away from stress. We turn ourselves away from worry because we're choosing to focus on gratitude. We're choosing to focus on contentment. See, what Paul is getting at in this is actually something where we're going to go back to last week. Last week, we spent time in the Sermon on the Mount, this long chunk of teaching that Jesus gave to a large group of people in the hills outside of Jerusalem. And he was, Jesus was kind of giving like this whole big, like, you have heard this is the way things are, but I'm going to tell you it's this way. And Jesus gives this big, long length of teaching. And in that, there was a verse we looked at last week that I said, we're going to unpack this week, and that's this one. Jesus comes to this, he says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. See, Jesus is understanding there's a focus piece here. And this is what Paul was living out when he was in prison. Paul was seeking the kingdom. He was seeking the way that God wants to live. He was seeking the way that God is trying to shape and guide and steer our world toward. He was seeking that first. And living righteously doesn't mean living self-righteously. It's in fact the exact opposite. It's saying living the way that Jesus called us to live, living with gratitude, living with love, living with compassion, living with care, living in ways that demonstrate that God is alive, that Jesus is active, that the Holy Spirit is moving, living in ways that are revealing God to our world. That is what this verse means. When we do that, God will give you everything you need. Now, some of us are uncomfortable with that last line. Some of us, when we see verses like this, we feel a little bit like, "Ah, I don't know about that, because maybe there's something that you wished for or you wanted, and you were like, it never happened. You know, I, I, when I was about seven or eight, I remember being at this, I don't know what the event was, but there was a raffle for a dirt bike. And I convinced my dad to spend the five bucks or two bucks or whatever it was to buy a raffle ticket for this dirt bike. And then mom picked us up and took us home. And so I remember being upstairs in my bedroom, looking out the window, just waiting for dad to show up with this dirt bike in the back of the truck. And I'm like, I want it. It's going to happen. We're going to win that raffle. We're going to win that raffle guess what? Truck showed up, no dirt bike. I was, you know, seven-year-old me, his heart broke a little bit. See, sometimes we have an experience like that. And what we don't realize is that when Jesus is working in us, when we are seeking the kingdom, when we are living selfishly, what we want and what we need, we start realizing those are two different lists. What do we actually need? See, if we go a little further in the Sermon on the Mount to something that Jesus says a little bit later in the next chapter of our scripture. Jesus tells his followers this. He's telling them to ask for what they need. And he tells them this. He says, if your child asks for bread, do you trick him with sawdust? If he asks for a fish, do you scare him with a live snake on the plate? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of doing such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. So don't you think the God who made you in love will be even better? Jesus says, you know, none of you would do that to your own kids. 
None of you would give your kids sawdust instead of bread or a a poisonous snake instead of a fish. He says, don't you realize that the God who made you, and this is why scripture constantly uses this image and this metaphor of adoption, of us being God's children, that that is the identity that God gives us because he cares for us and he wants to give us what is good. But the catch is, God's provision always lines up with his will, not ours. And this is what Paul understood when he was in that jail, in Philippi, in, uh, when he wrote the letter of Philippians. God's will in the moment is what trumped Paul's will. Sure, Paul wanted to be free. Sure, he, I guarantee he was praying for freedom. But he also knew that his imprisonment would eventually take him to Rome, a place where he wanted to go and preach the gospel. He also knew that God could do things through him being imprisoned, and so he chose to be content with this. And so Paul understood this and lived this out, that God's provision, God wants to care for us, God wants to provide for us. But we have to check our hearts first and say, is this seeking my will or is this seeking God's will? We have to ask that question of ourselves first. And we're going to wrap up by going to one other letter that Paul wrote during his time of imprisonment. And we don't know exactly where he was when he was in prison for writing this one, but this was a letter that Paul didn't write to a church or a group of churches. This was a letter that he wrote to a personal friend. And in fact, this wasn't just any personal friend. This was the guy who Paul brought along with him when he was just a kid. He found Timothy when Timothy was probably somewhere around the age of 14 to 16 years old and brought Timothy along with him as Paul was traveling. And Paul was teaching Timothy because Paul knew that someone would have to take up his mantle after. Someone would have to take on the role that Paul had after Paul. And Timothy is who God chose and put in the right place at the right time for Paul to meet and take along. And so Paul writes these two letters to Timothy that are written as a mentor to a pupil, that are written as a, but also at the same time from a friend to, some, to another friend. They care deeply for each other. And Timothy, by the time he receives this letter, is probably mid-20s, maybe 25, maybe 26, and he's already leading a large group of churches in an area known as Ephesus. And Paul writes this letter to him, and near the end of it, he's giving him advice and things that he wants Timothy to learn himself and also to teach to the churches that he's leading. And Paul writes this, he says, yet true godliness, that means being like Christ, living in the way that God has called us to live. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself a great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. He says, this is true wealth. Contentment is where we find true wealth. In fact, Pastor Erwin McManus from Mosaic Church in LA, I read a quote from him as I was researching this, where he said, I've always been wealthy and sometimes I had money. (laughs) He's always been wealthy. I've always found places where we say we have a lot. And sometimes there's money that goes along with it. But are we willing to find that through gratitude and contentment? And then Paul continues, he says, But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Real bright, sunny, flowery picture there, isn't it? If you long to be rich, that is a temptation, that is a trap. In fact, what Paul is saying in this is that we give up the freedom that we find in Christ when we give ourselves into greed. 
we give up the freedom that God has given to us when we choose to let ourselves fall into a trap of temptation. And then Paul continues, and we'll read one more verse. He says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some of us, sometimes we've heard this, just money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's not what Paul said. He says, For the love of money, putting money first, is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. What Paul's actually talking about in this is there was already people at this time that were preying on churches that realized that churches were generous people. And if they preached a message that sounded like Jesus, they could make a pretty nice living off of churches. And Paul is calling them out of saying, these people that are trying to lead churches but are only out for their own gain, they have wandered away from the true faith. They have pierced themselves with sorrows. Kind of a a vivid image there. But what Paul is getting at is this. Greed doesn't have to be our default. Love of money doesn't have to be our default. Our world wants it to be that. But that doesn't have to be our default. Instead, we can choose gratitude and contentment. We can choose every moment we feel that twinge of you see a nicer vehicle than yours drive by or you drive by a place that has a for sale sign that looks nicer than your place or whatever it is. You know, you, we all know what it is that we covet, that we want, that we don't have. The next time you feel that, I want you to challenge yourself. Take a moment and think of five things that you're grateful for. Think about, you know, five things you are content for. Even if that's too much, think of one of each. What is something you are thankful for in that moment? What is something you are content about in that moment? And as we do that, we start shifting our mindset. We start shifting our mindset to our possessions, to material things. We start shifting our perspective towards money. And that's when we can actually get ourselves to a place where we can start moving towards living with margin and living on mission. This is one of those steps for us to take. And so next week, we are continuing this series. And we're going to be talking about, is money a management mystery? What are some of the things that Scripture has to say about how we can actually learn to manage money? What's the perspective? What can we do with it? And then we're going to wrap up the series in two weeks where we talk about how money can be an incredible tool for good, how money can make a difference in our world. And that also, I just want to give one more reminder on that, that on that Sunday, the 27th, we have a baptism lined up. We're going to set up our tank. We're going to have it full, and it'll be hot and warm. It's not cold. And so if you're at that point in your faith, where you're thinking, you know, I might be at that point where I want to make a declaration of faith, where I want to take that step of obedience and choose to put my identity with Christ through baptism. I really want to encourage you to fill out a Connect card, fill out one online. I'll have a coffee with you or one of our elders will have a coffee with you and talk about baptism and what it means. And we'd love to baptize you and and celebrate this step in your faith. So let me just close with a word of prayer and then we're going to wrap up. God, thank you for all the things that you have given us that we often aren't grateful for. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to lean towards gratitude. I pray that you would help us lean towards contentment. And that in that place of contentment and gratitude that we would find this freedom that you have for us. That we would find freedom of purpose, freedom of being, that we would be able to live with you in that place. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, you would nudge and prompt us whenever we have these feelings. That today uh, of Thanksgiving weekend, of all, 
This time when we as a culture, as Canadians, turn towards, are we thankful for what you've provided in the harvests? Lord, would you help us to have that mindset, not just this weekend, but to have that mindset that carries through the year for us to be grateful and content for what you've done for us and what you've given to us. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray this together. Amen. So folks, I hope you have a really happy Thanksgiving. Please be safe on the roads and use caution. It's an icy one out there. See you next week. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.